Exodus 13.12 When slain, it was the fat which he presented, which later God also claimed as his own. Leviticus 3.16 and chapter 7, verse 25 Thus, it was of the most precious and valuable things on earth which Abel brought to God. So, it is our best which he requires of us. Son, give me thine heart. Proverbs twenty-three twenty-six. It is with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. Romans 10, 10. Fourth, his sacrificial offering looked forward to and adumbrated the great sacrifice, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. In all these four things, Abel excelled Cain. Cain did not act in obedience, for he disregarded the divine appointment. He did not offer in faith. Nothing is said of any choice of excellent fruit. It was as though he brought the first which came to hand. His offering contains no foreshadowment of Christ. Ere passing on, let us seek to gather up the practical teaching of what has been before us. 1. To serve God acceptably, we must disregard all human inventions, lean not unto our own understandings or inclinations, and adhere strictly to the revelation which he has made of his will. To all obedience, service, and worship must proceed from faith, for without faith it is impossible to please him. Hebrews 11.6 Where this be lacking, no matter how exact the performance of our duty, it is unacceptable to God. 3. We are to serve God with the best that we have, with the best of our abilities and with the best of our substance. Only as love constrains us will there be a doing it heartily as unto the Lord. For in all our religious exercises Christ must be before us, for only as they are perfumed with His merits can they meet with God's acceptance, by which He obtained witness that he was righteous. There is a little uncertainty as to whether the by which refers to Abel's faith or to the more excellent sacrifice which he offered. Though the latter be the nearest antecedent, yet with Owen, Gouge, and Manton, we believe the references to his faith. First, because it is not the Apostle's design in this chapter to specify the kind of sacrifices which were acceptable unto God. Second, because his obvious purpose was to illustrate and demonstrate the efficacy of faith. Third, because the Apostle here exemplifies what he had just said of the Old Testament saints, namely, that by faith they obtained a good report. Verse 2. Fourth, because this agrees much more closely 
with the analogy of faith. By the one perfect offering of Christ is the Christian constituted righteous before God. But it is through faith that he obtains witness of the same to his heart, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. Herein we are supplied with an illustration of For them that honor me I will honor, 1 Samuel 2.30. In keeping God's precepts there is great reward, Psalm 19.11. God will be no man's debtor. He who obediently, humbly, trustfully, lovingly respects his appointments and obeys his commandments shall be recompensed, not as a recognition of merit, but as what is divinely meet and gracious. God did not leave Abel in a state of uncertainty, ignorant as to whether or not his offering was approved. The Lord was pleased to assure Abel that the sacrifice had been accepted and that he was accounted just before him. The Greek word for he obtained witness is the same as is rendered obtained a good report in verse 2, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. This too is recorded for our instruction and comfort. From these words, we learn it is the good pleasure of God that His obedient and believing children should know His mind concerning them. Where there is a justifying faith in Christ which moves the Christian to walk according to the divine precepts, God honors that faith by granting assurance to its possessor. When we are enabled by faith, to plead the most excellent sacrifice and to present acceptable worship unto God, then we obtain testimony from Him through His Word and by His Spirit that our persons and services are accepted by Him. In Abel's case, he received from God an outward attestation. In the case of the Christian today, it is the inward authentication of his conscience, 2 Corinthians 1.12, to which the Holy Spirit also adds his confirmation, Romans 8.15. As we are now treating of this subject at length in our articles upon assurance, we will not enlarge any further here. God testifying of his gifts we are not told in Genesis 4 in so many words how he did so, but the analogy of faith leaves little room for doubt. By comparing other scriptures, it seems clear that the Lord evidenced his acceptance of Abel's offering and thereby testified that he was righteous by causing fire to descend from heaven and consume the sacrifice which in turn ascended to him as a sweet-smelling savor. In Leviticus 9.24 we read, And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat. So too we are told, 
Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice. 1 Kings 18.38 Compare also Judges 6.21, and 20, 1 Chronicles 21.26, and Psalm 20.3 margin. By which faith he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. The second clause is explanatory of the former. The parallel is found in Genesis 4, 4, where we read, And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. John Owen said, He testified in the approbation of his offering that he had respect unto his person that is, that he judged, esteemed, and accounted him righteous, for otherwise God is no respecter of persons. Whosoever God accepts or respects, he testifieth him to be righteous, that is, to be justified, and freely accepted with him. This Abel was, by faith, antecedently unto his offering. He was not made righteous, he was not justified by his sacrifice, but therein showed his faith by his works, and God, by acceptance of his works of obedience, justified him as Abraham was justified by works, namely, declaratively, he declared him so to be. Our persons must be first justified before our works of obedience can be accepted with God. For by that acceptance, he testifies that we are righteous. And by it, he being dead yet speaketh. Marvelously full are the words of God. His commandment is exceeding broad. Psalm 119.96 In every sentence of Holy Writ there is both a depth and breadth which our unaided minds are incapable of perceiving and appreciating. Only as the Holy Spirit, the inspirer and giver of the Word, deigns to guide us, John 16.13, only as He teaches us to compare passage with passage so that in His light we see light, Psalm 36, 9, are we enabled to discern in fuller measure the beauty, meaning, and many-sidedness of any verse or clause, such is the case in the sentence now before us. We are convinced that there is at least a threefold meaning and reference in it. Briefly, we will consider these in turn. And by it he being dead yet speaketh. The first and most obvious signification of these words is that by his faith's obedience, as recorded in Genesis 4 and Hebrews 11, Abel preaches to us a most important sermon. His worship and the fruits thereof are registered in the everlasting records of Holy Scripture, and thereby he speaketh as evidently as though we heard him audibly. 
there comes to us a voice from the far distant past, from the other side of the flood, saying, Fallen man can only approach unto God through the death of an innocent substitute, yet none save God's elect will ever feel their need of such. Set aside their own inclinations, bow to God's revealed will, and submit to His appointment. But they who do so obtain witness that they are righteous. Compare Matthew 23.38 and receive divine assurance that they are accepted in the Beloved and that their obedience, imperfect in itself, yet proceeding from a heart which desires and seeks to fully please Him, is approved for His sake. And by it, He being dead yet speaketh. And how did He die? By the murderous hand of a religious hypocrite who hated Him. Then began that which the Apostle affirms still to continue. He that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit. Galatians 4.29 Here was the first public and visible display of that enmity between the mystical seed of the woman and the mystical seed of the serpent. Abel's death was, therefore, also a pledge and representation of the death of Christ himself, murdered by the religious world. Those whom God approves must expect to be disproved of men, more particularly by those professing to be Christians. But the time is coming when the present situation shall be reversed. In Genesis 14, God said to Cain, The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Abel's own blood speaketh, crying to God for vengeance. And by it, he being dead yet speaketh. Though ruthlessly slain by his brother, the soul of Abel exists in a separate state alive, conscious, and vocal. He is among that company of whom the Apostle said, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held, and they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Revelation 6, 9 and 10. Thus Abel is not only a type of the persecution and suffering of the godly, but gives a pledge of the certain vengeance which God will take in due time upon their oppressors. God shall yet avenge his own elect, those in heaven as well as those on earth who cry unto him day and night, for him to avenge them. Luke 18, 7 and 8. Let us then seek grace to possess our souls in patience, knowing that ere long God will reward the righteous and 
Punish the Wicked Arthur Pink Continued in the October Studies Study number three The Life of David His Flight to Ziglag There are times when God's tender love for His people seems to be contradicted by the sore testings which He sends upon them. Times when His providences appear to clash with His promises. Then it is that faith is tested and so often fails. Then it is also that the superabounding grace of God is evidenced by delivering the one who has given way to unbelief. These principles are illustrated again and again on the pages of Holy Writ, especially in the Old Testament, and one of their chief values is for us to lay them to heart, turn them into earnest prayer, and seek to profit from them. God forbid that we should rest them to our destruction. Second Peter 3.16 God forbid that we should deliberately sin in order that grace may abound, Romans 6, 1 and 2. And God forbid that we should take the failures of those who preceded us as excuses for our own grievous faults, thus endeavoring to shelter behind the faults of others. Rather let us seek grace to regard them as danger signals set up to deter us from slipping into the snares which tripped them. To Abraham, God promised a numerous seed, Genesis 12:2, but his providences seemed to run counter to the fulfillment. Sarah was barren, but the sterility of her womb presented no difficulty to omnipotence nor was there any need for Abraham to attempt a fleshly compromise by seeking a son through Hagar, Genesis 16. True, for a while, his plan appeared to succeed, but the sequel not only demonstrated the needlessness for such a device, but in Ishmael a bitter harvest was reaped. And this is recorded as a warning for us. To Jacob God said, Return unto the land of thy fathers and to thy kindred, and I will be with thee. Genesis 31.3 During the course of his journey, messengers informed him that Esau was approaching with 400 men, and we read that Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Chapter 32, verse 7. How human, true, and how sad, how dishonoring to God. What cause for fear was there when Jehovah was with him? Oh, for grace, to trust in him at all times. Psalm 62, 8. Learn, dear brethren and sisters, that faith must be tested to prove its genuineness. Yet only he who gives faith can maintain it. And for this we must constantly seek unto him. 
what has just been before us receives further illustration in the subject of these articles. David was the king elect, yet another wore the crown. The son of Jesse had been anointed onto the throne, yet Saul was now bitterly persecuting him. Had God forgotten to be gracious? No, indeed. Had he changed his purpose? That could not be. Malachi 3.6 Why then should the slayer of Goliath now be a fugitive? He had been appointed to be master of vast treasures, yet he was now reduced to begging bread. Chapter 21, verse 3 Faith must be tested, and we must learn by painful experience the bitter consequences of not trusting in the Lord with all our hearts, and the evil fruits which are born whenever we lean unto our own understandings, take matters into our own hands, and seek to extricate ourselves from trouble. Concerning Hezekiah, we read that God left him to try him, that he might know all that was in his heart. Second Chronicles 32.31 None of us know how weak he is till God withdraws his upholding grace as he did with Peter and we are left to ourselves. True, the Lord has plainly told us that without me ye can do nothing. We think we believe that word and in a way we do. Yet there is a vast difference between the non-calling into question of a verse of Scripture and assenting to its verity and an inward acquaintance with the same in our own personal history. It is one thing to believe that I am without strength or wisdom. It is another to know through actual experience. Nor is this, as a rule, obtained through a single episode any more than a nail is generally driven in securely by one blow of the hammer. No, we have to learn and relearn. So stupid are we. The truth of God has to be burned into us in the fiery furnace of affliction. Yet this ought not to be so, and would not be so, if we paid more heed to these Old Testament warnings furnished in the biographies of the saints of yore. In our last article, we saw that following the murderous attack of Saul upon him, David fled to Naoth. But further did his relentless enemy follow him. Wondrously did God interpose on his servant's behalf. Yet being a man of like passions with ourselves and the supernatural grace of God not supporting him at the time, instead of David's fears being thoroughly removed and his waiting quietly with Samuel to receive a word of divine guidance, he was occupied with his immediate danger from Saul and, after vainly conferring with Jonathan, took things into his own hands and fled to Nam. There he lied to the priest, by means of which he obtained bread. 
but at the fearful cost of Saul seeking vengeance through Doeg in slaying eighty-five of those who wore the linen ephod. Disastrous indeed are the consequences when we seek to have our own way and hew out a path for ourselves. How differently had things turned out if David trusted the Lord and left him to undertake for him. God is all-sufficient in Himself to supply all our need, Philippians 4.19, and to do for us far more exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, Ephesians 3.20. This He can do either in an immediate way or immediately if he sees fit to make use of creatures as instruments to fulfill his pleasure and communicate what he desires to impart to us. God is never at a loss. All things, all events, all creatures are at his sovereign disposal. This foundational truth of God's all-sufficiency should be duly improved by us taking heed that we do not by our thoughts or actions reflect upon or deny this divine perfection. And this we certainly do when we use unlawful means to escape imminent dangers. Such was the case with Abram, Genesis 20, and Isaac, Genesis 26, when they denied their wives, concluding that there was a necessary expedient to save their lives, as though God were not able to save them in a better and more honorable way. Such, we shall see, was the case with David at Ziglag. We also made brief reference in our last article to the fact that when the saint is out of touch with God, when he is in a backslidden state, his behavior is so different from his former conduct, so inconsistent with his profession, that his actions now present a strange enigma. And yet that enigma is capable of simple solution. It is only in God's light that any of us see light. Psalm 36.9 As the Lord Jesus declares, he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness. John 8.12 Yes, but it is only as we are really following him our hearts engage with the example which he has left us that we shall see, know, and take that path which is pleasing and honoring to him. There is only one other alternative and that is seeking to please either our fellows or ourselves. And where this is the case, only confusion and trouble can ensue. When communion with God, who is light, is severed, nothing but spiritual darkness is left. The world is a dark place. Second Peter 1.19 and if we are not ordering our steps by the word, Psalm 119, 105, then we shall flounder and stumble. 
the backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways. Proverbs 14.14 Not with the ways of God. Psalm 103.7 Where fellowship with the Lord is broken, the mind is no longer illuminated from heaven. The judgment is clouded, and a lack of wisdom, yea, folly itself, will then characterize all our actions. Here is the key to much in our lives. The explanation of those unwise doings, those foolish mistakes, for which we have had to pay so dearly. We were not controlled by the Holy Spirit. We acted in the energy of the flesh. We sought the counsel of the ungodly or followed the dictates of common sense. Nor is there any determining to what lengths the backslider may go or how foolishly and madly he may not act. Solemnly is this illustrated in the case now before us. As we saw in the preceding paper, David was worried at being unarmed and asked the high priest if there were no weapon to hand. On being informed that the only one available was the sword of Goliath which had been preserved in the tabernacle as a memorial of the Lord's goodness to his people. David exclaimed, There is none like it. Give it me. 1 Samuel 21.9 Alas, how had the fine gold become dim? He who, when walking in the fear of the Lord, had not hesitated to advance against Goliath with nothing in his hand save a sling, now that the fear of man possessed him, places his confidence in a giant's sword. Perhaps both writer and hearer are inclined to marvel at this, but have we not more reason to mourn as we see in this incident an accurate portrayal of many of our past failures? And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath, for Samuel 21.10. Fearing that Saul would pursue him were he to make for any other part of the land of Israel and not being disposed to organize a company against him, David took refuge in Gath of the Philistines. But what business had he in the territory of God's enemies? None whatever, for he had not gone there in his interests. Verily, oppression maketh a wise man mad. Ecclesiastes 7, 7 Few indeed conduct themselves in extreme difficulties without taking some manifestly false step. We should therefore watch and pray that we enter not into temptation. Matthew 26.41 Earnestly seeking from God the strength which will alone enable us to successfully resist the devil. And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. It is evident from what follows that David hoped he would not be recognized. 
Thus it is with the backslidden Christian as he fraternizes with the world. He attempts to conceal his colors, hoping that he will not be recognized as a follower of the Lord Jesus. Yet, behold the consummate folly of David. He journeyed to Gath with the sword of Goliath in his hands. Wisdom had indeed deserted him. As another has said, common prudence might have taught him that if he sought the friendship of the Philistines, the sword of Goliath was not the most likely instrument to conciliate their favor. But where a saint has grieved the Holy Spirit, even common sense no longer regulates him. And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Verse 11. God will not allow his people to remain incognito in this world. He has appointed that they should be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without blame in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom they are to shine as lights in the world. Philippians 2.15 And any efforts of theirs to annul this, he will thwart. Abraham's deception was discovered. Peter's attempt to conceal his discipleship failed. His very speech betrayed him. So here, David was quickly recognized. And thus it will be with us. And mercifully is this the case. For God will not have his own to settle down among and enjoy the friendship of his enemies. And David laid up these words in his heart and was sore afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Verse 12. What right had David to be at Gath? None whatever. And God soon caused circumstances to arise which showed him that he was out of his place, though in wondrous mercy he withheld any chastisement. How sad to hear of him who had so courageously advanced against Goliath, now being sore afraid. The righteous are bold as a lion, Proverbs 28.1. Yes, the righteous, that is, they who are right with God, walking with him and so sustained by his grace. Sadder still is it to see how David now acted, instead of casting himself on God's mercy, confessing his sin and seeking his intervention, he had recourse to deceit and played the fool. B.W. Newton said, And he changed his behavior before them and feigned himself mad in their hands and scrabbled on the doors of the gate and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. Verse 13 Afraid to rely upon the man whose protection he had sought, the anointed of God now feigned himself to be crazy. 
It was then that he learned experimentally it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Psalm 118, verse 9. The king elect feigned himself mad. Such was the condition into which David had sunk himself. Saul himself could scarcely have wished for a deeper degradation. Unquote. Learn from this, dear hearer, what still indwells the true saint and which is capable of any and every wickedness, but for the restraining hand of God. Surely we have need to pray daily, Hold thou me up, and I shall be safe. Psalm 119, 117 Then said Achish unto his servants, Lo, ye see the man is mad, Wherefore then have ye brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that ye have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Verses 14 and 15. How evident is it to the anointed eye from the whole of this incident that the Holy Spirit's object here was not to glorify David, but to magnify the long-suffering grace of God and to furnish salutary instruction and solemn warning for us. Throughout the scriptures, the character of man is accurately painted in the colors of reality and truth. Many are the lessons to be learned from this sad incident. Though ingenious falsehoods may seem to promote present security, yet they ensure future disgrace. They did for Abraham, for Isaac, for Jacob, for Peter, for Ananias. Leaning unto his own understanding, conducted David to Gath. But he soon learned from the shame of his folly that he had not walked in wisdom. Not only was David deeply humiliated by this pitiful episode, but Jehovah was grievously dishonored thereby. Marvelous indeed was it that he escaped with his life. This can only be attributed to the secret but invincible workings of his power, moving upon the king of the Philistines. For as the title of Psalm 34 informs us, Achish drove him away, and he departed. Such was the means which an infinitely merciful God used to screen his child from imminent danger. From Gath, David fled to the cave of Adullam. Blessed is it to learn of the repentant and chastened spirit in which the servant of God entered it. The 34th Psalm was written by him then, as its superscription informs us, and in it the Holy Spirit has given us to see the exercises of David's heart at that time. There we find him blessing the Lord, his soul making his boast in him. Verses 1 to 3. There we hear him saying, 
I sought the Lord, and He heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 4. There He declares, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him, and delivereth them. Verses 6 and 7. But it was more than praise and gratitude which filled the restored backslider. David had learned some valuable lessons experimentally. Therefore we hear him saying, Come ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days, that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Verses 11 to 14. B. W. Newton said, He had proved the evil of lying lips and a deceitful tongue, and now was able to warn others of the pitfall into which he had fallen. Unquote. But it is blessed to mark that he warned not as one who was left to reap the harvest of his doings, but as one who could say, The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. Verse 22 Arthur Pink Continued in the October Studies Study number 4 The One Thing Needful Sermon by C.H. Spurgeon But one thing is needful. Luke 10.42 We have no difficulty whatever in deciding what that one thing is. We are not allowed to say that it is the Savior, for He is not a thing. And we are not permitted to say that it is attention to our own salvation. For although that would be true, it is not mentioned in the context. The one thing needful, evidently, is that which Mary chose, that good part which should not be taken away from her. Very clearly, this was to sit at Jesus' feet and hear his word. If anything be plain at all in Holy Scriptures, it is most clear that this is the one thing needful, to sit at Jesus' feet and hear His word. This and nothing less. This and nothing more. The mere posture of sitting down and listening to the Savior's word was nothing in itself. It was that which it indicated. It indicated in Mary's case a readiness to believe what the Savior taught, to accept and obey, nay, to delight in the precepts which fell from His lips. And this is the one thing needful. 
He that hath it hath the spirit of grace and life. To sit at Jesus' feet implies submission. Such an one is no longer resisting his power. He has cast down the weapons of his rebellion and has come humbly to acknowledge the Redeemer as Lord and King in his soul. This is needful, absolutely needful, for no rebel can enter the kingdom of heaven with the weapons of rebellion in his hands. We cannot know Christ while we resist Christ. We must be reconciled to his gentle sway and confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To sit at Jesus' feet implies faith as well as submission. Mary believed in what Jesus said and therefore sat there to be taught by him. It is absolutely necessary that we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in his power as God and man, in his death as being expiatory, in his crucifixion as being a sacrifice for our sins. We must trust him for time and for eternity in all his relationships as prophet, priest and king. We must rely upon him. He must be our hope, our salvation, our all in all. This one thing is an absolute necessity. Without it we are undone. A believing submission and a submissive faith in Christ we must have or perish. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.